You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back for week two of our summer sermon series. That's hard to say fast. Uh, Summer sermon series entitled, What Would Jesus Say? What would Jesus say? Over the course of these next eight or nine weeks this summer, uh, you actually had a hand in writing uh, this sermon series. You're the ones that submitted questions ever since Easter, questions that you've always had about faith and about a God and about the Bible. Maybe these are questions that... you've always wondered about uh, when it came to Jesus because Jesus never addressed it directly. Or maybe these are passages where the Bible doesn't, it seems kind of confusing on passages that are are questions and topics that, man, if you had a shot to ask Jesus a question, what would you ask him? And so uh, that's the uh, duration of the next several uh, sermons. We're going to be engaging in these topics and engaging in a whole bunch of different things that uh, you submitted uh, over the course of these last several weeks. Uh, last week, if you missed it, was sort of like a palate cleanser. It was sort of like a, well, before we get to what Jesus has to say on any one of these topics, maybe the question we need to start with is, are we actually listening? Uh, do I even care? Do I even want to know uh, what Jesus would say to me, about me, and to my life? And so we, gave, we made it really practical, really practical. Maybe you're someone here today who's like, man, I don't know if I've ever heard God speak to me, or my prayer life is kind of just like it was active at one point, and now it's kind of turned off. Like, we made it really practical last week and talked about, like, how do you actively pray and engage uh, in a centered, sort of mindful and open relationship with God? And so if that's interesting to you, if you're tuning in online, and that sounds like a a good place to start, the beauty of online is you can binge church for the rest of the day today. Uh, Skip Netflix and just watch me for the duration of your afternoon, uh, and you can catch that sermon there uh, if you'd like. But today what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and jump in, okay? We're going to jump into the questions you had, the questions you submitted over the course of the last several weeks, questions that, again, have always gnawed at you, questions that because of experiences in your own life or experiences in the life of someone you love, you've always wondered, what would Jesus say about this particular topic? And today, uh, we are tackling easily, easily, without a doubt, the most frequently asked question we get asked here in the church today, which is... What would Jesus say to his LGBTQ children? This is easily the most uh, frequent question I get, both via, via email and in person and after church and before church and during the week. And it's the question that, let's be honest, let's be honest, uh, the church, capital C, writ large, uh, is wrestling with, right? And uh, we've kind of reached a place uh, where it's reached a, a, it's powerful, it's reached a powerful place uh, in the sort of faith life and faith communities in that it's beginning to have some really, really big implications for how and if people engage church at all. For example, uh, recently a study found this. It found that when American Christians were polled, only 25, so 25% of them, so one in four, one in four uh, describe themselves as religiously unaffiliated. I don't want to be connected to any one denomination. I don't want to be connected to any one church. I don't even know if I'm ready to connect myself with Christianity writ large. And what's fascinating about that, what's fascinating about that is, number one, uh, that may not seem, a bi- seem like a big number to you, uh, but that actually uh, number has doubled in the last 10 years, Okay. So we're on a quick pace of folks disaffiliating more and more from church. Now, while this is not the only reason, while this is not the only reason, 
uh, a third of millennials uh, who are disengaging from church right now say they do so, say they're not about it anymore because of the church's historical treatment of the LGBTQ community. And this is actually something shared not just with millennials, but maybe you're like, yeah, I've, I have not been uh, in that millennial age group uh, for a long time. But um, this is actually shared across the generational spectrum. So check this out. Um, over half of every generation, every generation, regardless of political status or theological views or religious views, 53% of Americans said, uh, of boomers, 58% of Gen X and 70% of millennials say, you know, I don't necessarily, some of us are like, I don't even know what I think about the topic, and I don't know how I, what, I, what I believe or think, but I do know that the church has done a lot of harm to folks in this community. And it's true. We have. We are. The, the Trevor Project, which is uh, an organization that specifically deals with and tries to work with LGBTQ teens, has published some uh, findings that uh, haunt me, that keep me up at night. Uh, uh, findings like these, that uh, did you know that the, uh, the demographic of LGBTQ teenagers is actually the fastest growing demographic when it comes to those who die by suicide? Which, uh, mathematically, uh, when you compare LGBTQ teens with their peers, they are four times as likely to attempt. And if you want to play out the math even further, I did it. Uh, it's, that means that there is in this world today, right now, right now, an LGBTQ teenager who is attempting or seriously contemplating suicide every 45 seconds. It hits uh, close to home for our family because three years ago, right before the pandemic, uh, a transgender teenager in our own neighborhood completed suicide. And so, here at the jump, here at the jump, I just want to say this. I want to say this. If these realities, these statistics, these things that you learn, if they break your heart, but they don't break the heart of your God, that's a problem. That's a problem. I like to say it this way. If ever you find yourself out in the world and you feel more compassionate than the almighty God of the universe, that's fine, but that God ain't Jesus. Right? Amen? Like, I feel like I'm a, a relatively compassionate person, uh, but, like, I will have moments where I'm like, absolutely, you can go in front of me in line. Uh, absolutely, this person wants to merge in traffic. And then the next day... I could lose my Christianity like that, right? <laughs> and so if ever we feel like on this topic or any one topic, we've got more compassion. Like, man, I really just wish that like I could be loving and accepting of this person, but it's, it's my God. That's the problem. That's actually not a God problem. That's a you problem. Okay? And you better believe that these realities, those stats, those findings I just shared with you, you better believe that they break the heart of Jesus every day. How could they not when we're talking about any type of loving, compassionate parent? And so it begs the question. Again, it begs the question. This is the question we're here to wrestle with and tackle today. 
Not, what did that pastor say? What did your parents say? What did that teacher say? What did that family member say? What is Jesus, the person that we are here to worship, the person that we here at this church, we worship and we try to follow, very imperfectly, but we try with everything in our might to follow. What does he have to say on this topic? So let's dive in. If you have your Bibles with you, if you brought them with you to church, or if you've got your smart devices and you want to return back with me to the scripture passage for today, return back to Matthew chapter 19, or if you're watching this online, we're going to be camped out in Matthew chapter 19 for the first part of our conversation. And friends, uh, as we do so, I want to be super clear about something, super clear about something. So just to, to, to be brutally and truly, truly honest, one of the reasons why I think this question gets asked so often in the church today is because Jesus actually never, ever addresses it directly. Okay, so let's just be super honest about it. Let's just be super forthright about it. Now, we'll talk about the Bible writ large in a moment, but there's not one single moment in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the, the topic of LGBTQ inclusion or homosexual relationships. He never engages it one single time. For starters, it was because in the first century, they had no idea or conception of sexual orientation or anything of the, the like. And so what we're going to do here today is a similar thing we're going to do throughout the duration of the series, which is if there's a question on your mind that you've always wondered what Jesus would say about it and he never tackles it directly, then we're going to go, okay, are there sort of tangentially sort of connected stories or lessons or teachings that Jesus says that might be indirectly connected to and might inform our understanding of what he would say if he got the chance to do so today on this particular question? Sound good? So here's what we're going to do. Today we're going to dive into Matthew chapter 19 because in this moment, this is the closest Jesus ever gets to it, okay? This is the closest Jesus ever gets to addressing this particular topic of persons uh, who belong to a sexual minority community such as the LGBTQ community. To give you a little context, here's what's going down. Uh, What's going down is there's like three major players in this conversation. So there's Jesus there's his disciples, and there's all like the religious and the hyper-legalistic sort of folks, and they're having this debate. They're having this debate about marriage and divorce. So they're not even talking about this. They're talking about marriage and divorce writ large, and they're having this debate because some of the folks uh, are saying, hey, like we, the religious folks are saying, like, we should be able to divorce people, like it's totally fine or whatever, and Jesus is like, yeah, nah, you can't do that, and he's doing so because you have to remember, in the first century, Marriage was not romantic, it was contractual. Like you got married not based off of like who you were in love with. You got married to people who you were like, dang, her dad's rich, I want some of that. Let's go! Um, like that's why you got married. And so like what had happened is often folks would, they were, they were asking Jesus like, is it okay for me to get a divorce? And Jesus was like, no, you can't just do it like willy-nilly because when you do, you place the women in those relationships in a really economically and socio, uh, so, uh, sociologically vulnerable position because like, now it's harder for them to move on with their life whereas the man could do whatever the heck they want. So it, it was an injustice thing that Jesus is addressing. He's not calling out divorcees. I digress. But that's super important because the disciples are over here, and they're, like, watching this whole fight go down, and they're, like, watching back and forth, and they're, like, oh, my gosh, this is, like, really confusing. And so, like, it's probably, like, Peter or one of them. They're just, like, um, so, like, maybe we just, like, shouldn't get married at all. And Jesus is, like, um, whoa, 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 not so fast. Not so fast, okay? Not everyone can accept that. Not everyone can live that way. Not everyone can live a celibate life, which, side note, uh, the first time I heard this as a middle school boy in youth group, I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Do 
Jesus, if there's like other crosses you would like for me to bear, that's great. But like, I don't, not the, not the celibacy one, like not, not that one, like not uh, these, that's fine. Like that, not that one. So first time I heard this, I was like, woo, sweet Jesus, we getting married, baby. Here we go. So Jesus says, again, he says, not everyone can accept this word. And then he makes a really, really interesting move. Makes a really interesting move. To make his point or to prove his point, the particular people group that he brings into the conversation are eunuchs. Now, eunuchs are not words that we use today. It's not really even a concept we even think about. Maybe you don't even know what those are today. But in the first century, a eunuch was someone who was disallowed from being married. And according to Jesus, there's a couple of different types of eunuchs during Jesus' day. You were either a eunuch of who was born this way, born this way. So this is someone uh, in the first century who would have suffered from some sort of physical defect or biological defect that biologically and physically rendered them unable to procreate. And so as a result of that, they would say, okay, well, you can't get married. You're, you're ceremonial unclean, you're sociologically, so they would found them that way. But what's also fascinating is that if you actually do the research, you'll find that not only uh, is it uh, in ref- is born that way, used in reference to folks with like a physical defect, but it was also used in reference to folks who never ever had the desire to marry someone that would be appropriate for them. Some people think the reason why Jesus uses eunuchs as an example is because people often thought he was a eunuch. 33-year-old dude, never married, never had kids, like... They begin to sort of like, oh, maybe this is, this is a term we'll use not only for folks with a physical sort of uh, defect, but also persons who never had the desire, never had the desire, okay? Secondly, Jesus says there's also eunuchs who were made eunuchs by others. Now, this is going to get a little bit graphic for a minute, but bear with me. Uh, one of the other practices in the first century and even before that, there's a number of instances in Scripture that talk about eunuchs uh, who were made eunuchs. These were most of the time, these were males who were in their uh, servanthood, in their slavehood to this uh, leader or authoritarian or this emperor or whatever, were often castrated as an ultimate sort of sacrifice and an ultimate act of like, I own you sort of thing. Like if you, could, if you castrate this male servant, then you can entrust this male servant in every single arena of your life. You can entrust them with your wife and with your concubines and they'll never impregnate them because Everything that they, every threat that they had in that realm was taken away from them. Now, this is what's so important about reading and studying the Bible in context, making sure that when we read and study the scriptures, we do so not dismissive of science, not dismissive of biology, not dismissive of history, but letting them inform and help us understand what's actually going on. Because what we also know is I did some research a couple weeks back, trying to learn more about eunuchs and the life of a eunuch and what that would have been like in the first century. And one of the foremost experts on this topic is a guy by the name of Orlando Patterson, and he's done a bunch of different studies on the different types of slavehood uh, and, and, and servanthood. And he says this, he said, it's actually been medically proven, medically proven, that if, you're made, if you were made a eunuch in the first century, that if you were a male in the first century and you were castrated, that you would also have biological changes that would take place after that event. For example, he says that uh, eunuchs often had softer skin. Their voice would become uh, more feminine. It would be, it would be higher uh, in pitch than uh, those around them. They would walk different. Uh, there was a bunch of different sort of biological changes that would happen 
And often in the first century, what they would do, what people would do, they would demean and they would ridicule and they would marginalize eunuchs because they would say, you're not, you're not a male and you're not a female. You're just sort of like asexual being. You're this like third thing that we don't know what to do with. And so they would often relegate and marginalize these persons to the boundaries of society. And this person now was now, had physically endured something, had been traumatized by something that literally rendered them the inability to identify as male. Okay? You catching some of these connections? You catching some of these sort of parallels? And so what we see here, what we see here is that in these examples that Jesus uh, walks through, uh, what he walks through with us is that there's a bunch of different uh, sort of things impacting the life of a eunuch uh, that would have been really, really uh, sort of interesting to tease out, especially on the societal side, but also on the spiritual side. Because not only uh, were eunuchs relegated and marginalized and oppressed societally, but they were also done so religiously. Deuteronomy chapter 23 says this. It says that if, you're, uh, if, you, are, uh, if you are castrated or if you suffered any sort of uh, defect in the area of your genitalia, you were prohibited from entering into the temple for worship. And so it just begs the question. It begs the question. When Jesus is having this conversation about marriage and relationships, why would he choose to bring in and include this particular people group? It's because this is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does so often. He takes a people group that gets excluded from the conversation, that gets marginalized and pushed to the boundaries, and he involves them in the conversation. He involves what, again, would have been classified in the first century as a sexual minority. He's involving them in the conversation, and he appears to be deeply sympathetic towards them. He seems to be deeply uh, accepting and inclusive of them, and the way in which I know that is because of how he ends the entire conversation. Did you catch this? At the very end of the conversation, so he breaks it all down, and he says, the one who can accept this should accept it. That is the most nonchalant sort of way of approaching a conversation ever, right? Like if Jesus was really hell-bent on saying, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, you got to live this way, like he would have come down really hard and fast. But he just sort of says nonchalantly, like if you can accept it, you know, great. If you can't, then, then do something different. Like the level of urgency he shows here is the same level of urgency that I have with my daughter who for the love of God, can never make a decision. And so she runs to me after a meal every single time, and she goes, Daddy, like, I'm really struggling. Like, I don't really know what to do. Like, um, I'm like, sweetie, what's going on? What's, what's wrong? She's like, I've, I've been praying about it and thinking about it, and I just, like, should I have candy or a cookie for my dessert today? <laughs> like, sweetie, I don't, I don't care. Like, I don't, I really couldn't, I can't even summon the energy to care about, I mean, just, just whatever you want to do. Now, if it is the last crumble cookie, sister, you, you choose the candy. You choose the candy. Come on. Overall, when I look at this, when I read this, when I watch Jesus break it down, it seems super apparent to me that on this topic of sexual minorities, persons who belong to a particular uh, sexual orientation, those who uh, belong to the LGBTQ community, uh, the contemporary example of what he's alluding to here. It's been a big issue for religion, and it's been a, seems like no issue to Jesus. 
doesn't even seem like he pays even a single, he doesn't bat an eye at a single further. He moves on to another topic, another person in need right after this. Now, I know what you're thinking, okay? How do you know that? I just do. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Kyle, that's great. That's wonderful. That's fine. That's fine. But what about, like, all the passages in the Bible? Like, what about the other scriptures in, 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 in the Bible that seem to be more black and white, that seem to be, that come down pretty harsh? Like, what about those that seem pretty cut and dry on this issue? Like, what am I supposed to do with those? And, and how am I supposed to read and interpret those? And this is where I want to uh, be just transparent and vulnerable with you uh, this morning because this is precisely where this topic intersects with my own story. Friends, I'll be the first to tell you that the way in which I see and understand this topic today was not where I started. It's not where I started. When I first came to faith, I had a super simple relationship with God. The Bible said it. I believed it. That settled it. Didn't really question things, didn't really do any homework, never studied in context or paid attention to other voices. I just sort of read it sort of that way. Even with all the discrepancies, even with all of the places that seemed contradictory to who Jesus was and condoning of violence and slavery and all those various things. And so when I first started in my relationship with Jesus, I started in a very different place. And then something changed. More accurately, someone changed me. The first thing that happened was over and over and over again, I was having people in my life that I love with all of my heart come out to me. My best friend from high school, my uncle, tons of friends in college and in seminary, people who I loved with every fiber of my being who were beginning to sort of hold me at arm's length distance because I was one of them Jesus people. And so what it did was it caused a crisis of my faith. It caused a crisis in my faith, and I really began to pray really, really hard. And I, I used to say things to Jesus like this. I used to say, this was later high school, beginning of college, I would say to Jesus, Jesus, I love you, and I've given my life to you, and I love these people with all of my heart. And I know you do too. And so, like, this just this, this doesn't line up. Like, this isn't matching up. And I'm struggling, and I need you to make it clear. And what that did is it sent me on, particularly like a two-year sort of journey for me where I did the research, did the work. I said, no, I'm going to confront all these passages that people say are super black and white and super clear, and I'm going to see if they actually are. And you want to know what I found out? They aren't. They aren't. And this is not an exhaustive conversation. We're not going to cover every single particular question you have about it or every single scripture that references it, but we're going to talk about the main ones and what I found when I was actually willing to engage and ask hard questions and ask where is the true heart of God in this conversation. When I did, I found things like this. So uh, one of the passages of scripture uh, that uh, persons have used uh, to sort of uh, say, prohibit same-sex relationships in the church is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. A very similar passage occurs in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. The same exact Greek word is used in both. And so some of you have heard this passage before, that uh, there's a, a list of different sins that Paul is prohibiting, saying that you cannot participate in, you should not uh, be anywhere associated with. 
and amongst those lists are contemporary translations list homosexuality. But what you don't know, what you don't know, is that the Greek word used here for homosexuality is this one. I practiced this word for 30 minutes before worship of both services today, and I still can't figure it out, and so if anyone can do that, I'll give you $20. Uh, But anyway, the word used here in the New Testament, did you know, did you know, the word, uh, that word actually refers to, if you study it in context, and you look at the way in which it's also translated, not only in scripture, but in also other first century literature, what you'll find is that that's actually more accurately translated. It actually more accurately refers to relationships between male masters and their boy slaves, and the sexual relationships they would force their boys, boy slaves into. Now, we don't have a word for that exactly, but the closest parallel we have is pedophilia. Now, what Paul is actually talking about here is that one of the ways in which you can sort of steer away from the kingdom of God and the abundant life that God has for you and for others is participating in these types of relationships. You're harming yourself. You're harming that child. What does Jesus say about causing uh, the young ones to stumble? It's better to put a millstone around your neck and jump into the ocean. Like, Jesus did not play when it came to defending the most vulnerable children among us. Another example occurs in the Old Testament. So in Leviticus chapter 18, you've probably heard this passage before as well, it says that it's unlawful for a man to lie with another man as he does with a woman. And what's so fascinating about this uh, particular uh, selection, this particular example, is that, uh, for starters, we also have to just have a different relationship with the book of Leviticus altogether, right? Like Leviticus also says it's perfectly acceptable to stone disobedient children. So um, I see some children up in this mug, and I saw y'all walk in with some kids, and I've seen how them kids behave uh, back in them children's ministry classrooms. So all I'm saying is, like, we got to engage it with, like, asking some critical questions. Like, you got to engage it uh, and sort of hold it in context that this is, this is a people group that existed way before Jesus. And so in some places, they're right in alignment with the teachings of Jesus, and sometimes they're way off, right? Leviticus is also the place that says you're supposed to stone a woman caught in adultery. But what does Jesus do when presented with that same opportunity, right? He shows mercy. He shows compassion. So we have to have a, a sort of a different relationship with Leviticus than we do with the Gospels, for example. But another thing specifically to point out about Leviticus chapter 18 is that if you go and read this chapter for yourself, which please do, don't just take my word for it, go and do this homework yourself. If you go and read Leviticus chapter 18, you will find the majority of that book, the major, sorry, the majority of that chapter is addressing incest. So it's talking about the dangers of incest. In fact, the Hebrew word that's used in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, that you shouldn't, a man shouldn't lie with another man as he does with a woman is the Hebrew word, sakab. I got that one. That one was easy. Um, and what's fascinating, what's fascinating is that the same exact word, it's the same exact word used in Genesis chapter 49 when it talks about the incest between Reuben and one of his family members. So it's not as cut and dry as it was before. Or maybe for you, the big hang-up is Romans 1, right? Romans 1. Romans 1 is another passage of Scripture that Folks have read and interpreted as, oh, this is clear. This is not the type of relationships that God wants for us. He spells it out very, very clearly. He talks about how 
Paul in Romans 1 talks about the state of our world, and this is just one snippet. He's talking about the state of our world, and he's talking about how far off we've wandered and how far we've gone and how far away we've gotten from the heartbeat of God and how we, we, we're, we're so, we, we live in a very different world than what God wanted, yada, yada, yada. And so he's talking about all sorts of different things, and he names this. And then what's so fascinating, though, what's so fascinating, though, is, and I want to be super clear about something, super clear about something. I have no desire, no desire as a pastor to make the Bible say what I want it to say, okay? I've accepted the possibility that, there, that Paul, in the first century, he might have a different view uh, than Jesus did, right? He may have sort of de, de, different prejudices, different sort of thoughts towards different people groups that maybe Jesus himself didn't have. Case in point, how Paul treated women, how Paul, how Paul treated slaves, and maybe this is just yet another example. But thankfully, the, top, the title of this sermon series is not what would Paul say, this is what would Jesus say. And, but I would love, so, but I'm not going to sort of dismiss Paul because we're going to give him some credit where credit is due because, friends, this is what's super, super important. This verse always is probably the, the one that's used most out of context because when people pick and pluck this verse what they fail to understand is this actually wasn't Paul's main point. You want to know what Paul's main point was? Keep reading to chapter 2, verse 1, when he says this, You, therefore, those of you who grew up like in Sunday school, did you ever hear of the teacher who was like, if ever you see a therefore, you got to see what it was there for. Boo! Um, so you do. So if you see a therefore, you got to back up and see what he was there for, and then you got to keep going. So he says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment, you do the same things. You're the same way. We're all these Imperfect, broken people desperately struggling and looking for grace wherever we can find it. How dare you think that it's your job as a Christian or a follower of Jesus to pick and choose, to guard the gates of who gets to come in and who doesn't. Whew, it's a dangerous game. By the way, we haven't even scratched the surface of all the examples in Scripture where the heroes in the story are these very largely non-heteronormative characters, right? It's so fascinating to me, like, how much in the church today we preach, no, like, when you, we're, we're glad you're here. You need to follow Jesus, and you need to start a traditional family. Man, woman, two kids, not cats. Uh, dog, <laughs> white picket fence, two-story house, two cars. That's it. That's what it means to be a Christian. You do that. You're faithful. You've arrived. You've done it. <laughs> it's hilarious to me how often we preach that. When, when you survey the scriptures, you find so many examples of people who would have never fit that mold. Did you know? Did you know? So if you have a Jewish upbringing, this is not you, but this is the rest of us. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Congratulations. Boop, boop. And if you're a Gentile, did you know... The very, your very first ancestor, the very first conversion in the New Testament was an Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 8. Read the story yourself. One of these sexual minorities that Jesus was talking about, the very first Gentile in the entire New Testament who baptized, gets baptized and comes to faith 
is someone of this people group. Also, what about stories like in Matthew chapter, uh, is it Matthew 8? Matthew 8, uh, Jesus tells the story, or uh, the gospel writer tells the story of how Jesus walks into town one day, and the centurion walks up to him and says, yo, Jesus, got a problem. My servant uh, is home, it's paralyzed and sick, and needs your help, needs you to help heal them. But did you know, again, if you study in context, you do some digging, you go beyond the surface, you sort of understand what's going on here. If you study uh, and learn what word is used here, the word for servant is actually most commonly translated as, uh, it's the Greek word pious, and it's not only translated as lover, it's most often translated as male lover. So this soldier walks up to Jesus and says, potentially, I have a male lover at home who is paralyzed. Will you please heal him? And please show me. Let's, maybe, I, maybe I missed it. Please show me where Jesus says, oh, well, that's actually wrong, or like you're actually not allowed to be in relationship with that person. No, what does he say? He says, I quite literally have never seen someone with as great as faith as this person. He's healed. And in an instant, he's healed. Or, Take for this, again, this is not an exhaustive conversation, but one more I want to leave you with. What about the passage in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul is saying, listen, our newfound identity when you are baptized, when you become a follower of Jesus, is you are no longer a Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Almost as if to say, and this is not to say, Paul's not saying that your identities don't matter. He's saying, just to give you a heads up, in the life to come, we're going to spend little to no time debating about like who's worthy and who's not based off of their race or their socioeconomic status or their gender or their sexuality compared with all the time y'all waste on this conversation. And so let's, let's circle back to the question at hand, okay? Let's circle back to the question at hand. Jesus, what would you say? What are you saying to your LGBTQ children? Well, in summary, if Jesus, A, never addresses it directly, and I don't want to hear that bull that like, well, maybe he didn't have time. Broke had 33 years. Had plenty of time to be like, oh, yeah, real quick, because you guys are going to have a big uh, hard fight about this. This is what I think about this. Like, if he never addresses it directly in 33 years, and the closest he ever gets seems to be sympathetic and inclusive of persons who belong to a hyper-marginalized sexual minority group existing in the first century. And the Bible is not as black and white. It's not as cut and dry as some people make it out to be. Then how could Jesus say anything other to his LGBTQ children Oh, sweetheart, you are so dearly loved. You don't got to change that piece about you. Oh, you're loved as you are right now, right now. And furthermore, Jesus would be the person who would he'd take so much of an interest in our relationship lives that he would be like the, 
the grandmother who's always like probing at your relationship life. Anybody got someone like that? And they're always just like, well, tell me about this relationship. I want to know about it. Is it going the distance? Is he the one? What's going on? I feel like Jesus is like that as well. He would be the one who, as a very loving parent, would come alongside and say, like, but where's it going? What is this relationship doing in you? What, is it, what kind of effect is it having on you? What kind of a person is it making you into being? Jesus wants to know not are you choosing relationships based off of conformation, but transformation. You catch the difference? As any loving parent would do, Jesus' biggest concern when it comes to our relationships is not did you choose someone with a very similar e-harmony profile? Someone who, like, you know, has all the similar interests. You both like crocheting and all those various things. Did you conform to what we all expected of you? Great, great. No way! Jesus' questions are, are you with someone who makes you happy, who makes you healthy, who makes you holier than you were when you first met them? Maybe the, we're asking the wrong question of romantic relationships altogether. Maybe the biggest sort of rubric that Jesus has with our relationships has nothing to do with appearance. Maybe it has to do with the effect these relationships are having on you and you are having on them. Maybe the ultimate rubric Jesus is using is Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit, that this ought to be the measurement by which we use with all of our relationships. Am I showing up for this person, and are they showing up for me in such a way that's making me more loving, more joyous, more peaceful, more kind, more good, more faithful, more gentle, or more self-controlled? And if that's happening, dang, dude. You're becoming like him. And is that not the whole reason we're here? We're all trying to figure out how to be more like him. Listen to me, please. I need you to hear me. At the end of the day, do we really, really believe in a God? who would prefer one of his children be in a miserable, toxic, unhealthy, heterosexual relationship or in a relationship where they can thrive, where they're being nurtured, where they're being loved by their partner of the same gender, same sex? Do we really believe in a God who would rather one of his young children be placed in a foster home, again, that meets all the traditional family dynamics. Mom, dad, get no cat, uh, fence. Would we rather have a kid placed in that home who's getting abused, who's getting neglected, but heterosexual parents, or a kid who gets adopted by two moms, two dads, and is loved ridiculously? unconditionally and receives nothing but love and support and acceptance their entire life. Do we really believe in a God? Listen to me. Do we really believe in a God who would prefer for his LGBTQ teenage children to live straight in isolation, depression, and contemplating suicide every 45 seconds? Or 
truly loving and accepting who they are. And as a result of that, they become a force of nothing but light, love, and joy, and everyone around them sees it. It's a bigger question. It's just such a bigger question than what would Jesus say? Ultimately, it's what kind of God do you believe in? That's the question. And I'll leave you with this. I'll close here. Uh, those of you who are tuning online, you may not be uh, here locally, uh, but locally here in Apex, uh, yesterday, our town hosted its second ever Pride Festival. Some of you were there, some of you heard about this, you knew this was happening. And our church uh, hosted a booth. So there we are. There's some of those lovely human beings uh, out there um, from early in the morning to the late afternoon. Uh, I took the uh, late morning shift, and so there's uh, me and my very awesome, amazing, yet indecisive daughter, um, who it took her 10 minutes to pick out which sticker she wanted. Anyway, um, while I was there, they were, I, I, I couldn't possibly, in the closing part of the sermon, capture all of the amazing conversations I had with folks. Heartbreaking, yet amazing conversations I had with folks. But there are two realizations that came to me while I was out there. The first of which is, if you are someone who loves Jesus and wants to fully love and accept and stop putting asterisks and stop guarding the gates of your LGBTQ people in your life, guess what? There's actually a lot more of them out there than you think. Repeatedly, as I sat at that booth, people would come up to me and they would say, yes, it is so refreshing to, be a, to see a community who loves Jesus and also I could step into with myself uh, as a gay person, or I could bring my daughter into, and there wouldn't even be any discussion. It would just be like, oh, great, you know, Stan's here, or, you know, Sue is here, great. And the other realization I had was, I read the statistic a long time ago, uh, when, that when LGBTQ folks uh, were polled on their spirituality, check this out, 50%, over half, over half of our LGBTQ friends here, at our church and in our community are starving for a faith life, starving for a place to engage God safely, starving for a place to ask questions and learn more about this God who created them and apparently loves them so much, but they just don't have a place to do so. Again, some of you are here, I've had this conversation. And you said this is the first church where you feel like you could finally, truly be yourself safely here, as I am, no questions. And friends, that is who we are. And that's who we're going to be. If you're tuning in online or you're here for the very first time, welcome to the Peak Church. This is who we are. Why? that's who Jesus was. Why? Because that's also the tradition from which we hail from. Those of you theology nerds who didn't know this piece, the peak belongs to the Methodist tradition. The founder of the Methodist church was a guy by the name of John Wesley, and John Wesley had this amazing yet really weird and awkward line where he used to say this, I've come to know so much love and grace from Jesus that now I feel like I can do no other than be too promiscuous with God's grace than too stingy. That if I'm going to choose 
which risk I'm going to live with, I'm going to be too generous. I'm going to be too promiscuous. Which, again, sounds kind of weird. You've got to be like, uh, hyper-vigilant about what context you say that in front of. Um, but that's who we are. That's who I want to be. I want to be someone who is found at the end of their life who ran the risk of being so, so, even too generous with the grace that's been afforded me. Why? Because guess what? When I pass from this life to the next, I'm going to need it too. I'm going to need it too. And I'm freaking doomed if I show up in the next life and Jesus is stingy with forgiveness, stingy with compassion, stingy with his love. And I'll be damned if I'm not going to be found as one of these. Because, friends, the question at the end of the day you have to ask yourself is the very question that Jesus asks you in Matthew chapter 7. He says, just be careful whenever you're thinking about other people and judging other people because the measure that you give, the measure you use to judge other people, that's the same exact one that's going to be used on you. So you better make sure it's the one you want to receive. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.